Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that yesterday, today, and forevermore, you are the same. You are immutable. You never change. And you have given us your word as timeless and unchanging and true. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we begin to open your word, that you would tune our hearts and our minds to yours. Father, you would today speak to us what you would have us here that you would conform us and transform us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to remain tethered to your word. We thank you that in a world that is constantly shifting, constantly changing, constantly moving, constantly seeking to redefine even truth itself, that you remain the same. So we put our hope in you this morning ask that you would tether our hearts and our souls to yourself. So Father, as we come to these words this morning, help us to submit ourselves under the authority of your word to be obedient to the leading today of your Holy Spirit. We ask you very simply, Lord, will you make us more like your son, Jesus? We ask all these things in his name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me one more time. Uh, Matthew chapter 23. We're going to wrap this up this morning. We'll look in verses 29 to 39. And uh, if you're here today as our guest, my name's Taylor, and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. Uh, good morning to those of you who join us online as well. And uh, what we've been doing uh, the last several weeks is we have been in a message series called Bad Religion. We've been studying Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, where uh, Jesus pronounces his seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the harshest words that we see Jesus speak in all of the gospel accounts. He's speaking uh, overwhelmingly towards the end of condemnation for those uh, who have been leading out of great corruption, causing harm uh, and misleading people through their leadership with the word of God, abusing the word of God, abusing the people uh, that they've been called to lead. Jesus just drops the hammer uh, in Matthew chapter 23, and we're gonna wrap that up together this morning. Uh, the last couple weeks in particular, we've been talking talking a lot about how salvation is not a matter of outside-in uh, behavioral modification, but inside-out heart transformation. We're not saved through our religious efforts. We're not saved through our works. We're saved by grace, through faith, uh, in Jesus Christ alone. And, but what we end up doing, if we're not being careful, is we'll end up overcorrecting in the opposite direction. So I had a really uh, good conversation with several people after all three of our services uh, last Sunday that really amounted to the same thing. And, and, and so what we were asking, what we were talking about together, just as brothers and sisters in the Lord, was how is it that we as followers of Christ we uphold the clear commands of scripture, the things that God's word compels us to do and calls us to do, everything he calls us to do and be. How is it we hold up the clear commands of scripture? How is it that we hold up uh, even the hard truths of scripture without drifting into these extremes of legalism and fundamentalism? Because again, even as we're not saved by our works, it's clear from the word of God that there are works that we are called to now that we have been saved, right? Like, so it's, it's not just that we, you know, we pray a prayer and we sign a card, we walk an aisle, and that's just sort of it. I mean, th there is a standard that scripture calls us to, their commands 
that we're called to obey. There are truths from scripture, as difficult as they are to digest, that we're called to teach and to uphold. Because uh, even as we've seen Jesus through Matthew chapter 23, uh, speak overwhelmingly in condemnation against legalism, against fundamentalism, against self-righteousness, against religious pride, if we're not careful, we will overcorrect in the opposite direction where we move from legalism, where we're adding to the word of God, where it hasn't spoken clearly, into liberalism, where we're taking away from the word of God, where it has spoken clearly. And so we have to be very, very careful with this. We cannot, in the name of not wanting to be legalists, not wanting to be radical fundamentalists, soften the hard truths of scripture and lay down the commands uh, that Jesus has called us to obey. I love this from Leonard Ravenhill. He said once that when there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. And if we're not careful, we will drift into that extreme. And so particularly when you talk about this modern movement, it's particularly popular in the the social media world uh, of deconstruction. Right, so you're hearing all these stories of those who are deconstructing faith, who are walking away from the faith, who are walking away from the church. I just wanna say very, very quickly, we've seen a lot over the last several weeks that there are legitimate and serious instances of spiritual abuse that we should not overlook. There are many, and I would be so bold as to say, maybe some of you in this room today, I mean, you have experienced harm at the hands of the church, and that is in no way, shape, or form to be minimized. And it's our prayer that you would find healing, you would find restoration in the comfort of of the gathered believers. And and it would be our desire that leaders who are responsible for these things would be brought to justice. And so we in no way, shape or form want to minimize those who have experienced real harm at the hands of the church. But if we're just being totally honest, a lot of what's being called deconstruction right now, those who are walking away from the faith, it's people who simply opened up their Bible and they didn't like what they saw. They saw hard truth, they saw commands that that contradicted their lifestyle, it made them uncomfortable. It it challenged who they were, it was gonna challenge their comfort, it was gonna challenge their way of life, and that's what they're walking away from. And so in the name of uh, not wanting to become legalistic, not wanting to be radical fundamentalists, we cannot overcorrect to the extreme of laying down the commands of scripture and the hard truths of scripture. And this morning, we're really gonna see that tension put to the test in Matthew chapter 23. Because even as Jesus speaks condemningly of legalism and fundamentalism, he does it by clearly upholding maybe the hardest doctrine for us to believe in all of scripture, which is the doctrine and teaching of hell. R.C. Sproul was asked, the great theologian before he passed away, what is the most difficult truth of scripture for you to embrace? What is the most difficult doctrine for you to accept? And his answer is probably what most of our answers would be. It was the doctrine of hell. And yet we see Jesus clearly upholding this clear teaching from scripture. There's probably not a doctrine that is more closely associated with radical fundamentalism than teaching on hell. Because when we think about hell, a lot of our minds quickly just run to sort of this backwoods fundamentalist, you know, hellfire and brimstone type of culture. And so in the name of not wanting to be that, we just won't talk about the subject at all. Like we'll we'll ignore it entirely, but as we're gonna see through the teaching of Jesus this morning, we cannot compromise the hard truths of scripture in the name of not wanting to become like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is clear as we get into Matthew chapter 23 today that there are eternal consequences for our earthly self-righteousness. So I've, I've titled this message very simply this morning, The Warning and the Promise. Because in Matthew chapter 23, we find this warning. 
Those who refuse to repent of their self-righteousness, those who refuse to repent of their performance-based religion will experience the eternal judgment and condemnation of the Lord. But even with the warning, inherently there is a promise that if we will soften our hearts, if we will turn, if we will repent, the Lord will gather us to himself and we will experience eternal life and salvation in his name. So from uh, Matthew chapter 23, uh, let's begin with verses 29 through 36 this morning. Here's Jesus for the seventh time, woe to you. So again, if you've not been with us, this word woe, it is a statement of judgment and condemnation. It's born out of a deep sense of grief uh, over something that's wrong. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. We've seen the last several weeks, that word hypocrites, it's uh, the same word that's used for someone who is an actor or someone who is a fraud. He says, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." So just a little bit of context here this morning. During the time of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees had built these monuments and tombs uh, to honor the prophets who had come before them. The prophets who had been murdered by their forefathers. They had come preaching and proclaiming the word of God, uh, being his mouthpiece on earth, and yet they were universally rejected by the people. And so this is another one of those instances in Matthew 23 where Jesus is actually commending something that the scribes and the Pharisees do. We've seen him do this a couple of times. He said, you are doing this to honor those who came to speak my word. It's a good thing. So what they would do is they would oftentimes go to the places where the prophets had been killed, their lives had been taken or where they were buried and they would decorate their tombs. They would make them look beautiful and they would build up these places of honor, these monuments in their memory. And so it was almost a way uh, to posthumously uh, honor a group of people who had been martyred. So Jesus commends them for this. But then here's what Jesus condemns. The scribes and the Pharisees suffer, uh, what you and I are prone to suffer from what uh, C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. It's the belief that if we had been alive in those days, we would have done things differently. And so that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees would claim. They would build up these monuments. They would uh, enshrine these prophets whose lives had been taken from them. And they'd say, if it was us back then, we wouldn't have killed them. We would have faithfully received the word of God. We would have listened to what it is that they had to say. And yet Jesus is saying, here I am as the son of God, you're rejecting me. And so you prove that you're no more different than your forefathers. You say you would have done things differently, and yet here I am, the one who was coming to fulfill all of the words of the prophets, and they were going to crucify him just a short time later. So Jesus commends them for their action, but once again, he condemns their self-righteousness. We see him issue this stern warning. Verse 32, fill up the measure of your fathers. And he asked him in verse 33, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell. The hammer's fully going to drop here at the end of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is going to show there are eternal consequences. 
There are eternal consequences for our earthly self-righteousness. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you think you can really abuse my word and abuse my people and the hammer not drop? You really think you can abuse my word and abuse my people and there not be some sort of consequence? How are you to escape the hell that's to come? So we see first this morning the warning from Jesus for those who are unrepentant in their self-righteousness. And the warning is eternal condemnation without escape. How are you to experience the hell that is to come? Jesus pronounces their guilt in verses 34 to 36. He says, I sent you faithful leaders who spoke my words, but you harass them and you kill them and you crucify them. Verses 35 and 36, he gives the Old Testament examples of Abel to Zechariah. And so uh, Genesis chapter four, Abel is our first example in scripture of a righteous person who is murdered. It's out of jealousy that Cain murders Abel because of his faithful sacrifice to the Lord. Then in second Chronicles 24, we see Zechariah killed for preaching against the idolatry of King Joash. And so this is literally from A to Z, the first and the last righteous murder in the Old Testament. Jesus said all of the blood that was uh, spilled through the prophets, it's now coming down on you. He says, the hammer is finally and fully dropping on this particular generation. And this was self-fulfilling prophecy because in Matthew chapter 27, we see Jesus uh, being stood up publicly before the people, Pilate presenting him before the people. And what's the cry of the crowd? Let his blood be on us and on our children. They invite this judgment in. We see all throughout the book of Acts, it's the religious leaders who are persecuting the church at every single turn but the hammer drops on this generation. And Jesus asks them, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Probably the most uncomfortable doctrine for us to wrestle with in all of scripture at church, we need to remember, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in all of the Bible. He talked about hell more than any other person. Jesus actually talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus describes hell as a great chasm that cannot be crossed. He calls it a place of eternal tor tor torment and a place of no return. Mark 9, Jesus says that hell is a place of unquenchable, unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. Matthew 13, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, it's a place of outer darkness. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus likens hell to Gehenna. It was a local maggot-infested trash heap outside of the Jerusalem uh, walls where the fire continually burned day and night. Church, pay very, very close attention to this this morning. If fundamentalism wants you living in the fear that God could never love you, liberalism wants you living under the delusion that God will never judge you. Jesus speaks more clearly and emphatically on this subject more than any other person in all of the Bible. And we cannot throw out this doctrine in the name of not wanting to become a radical backwoods fundamentalist. We have to be so very careful that we don't compromise the clear teaching of scripture because here in this passage, Jesus is holding both of these intention. He's condemning self-righteousness and in the strongest terms, he's saying, no, there are eternal consequences. If you're gonna live in this self-righteousness, you're gonna harden your heart against me. You're gonna abuse my word. You're gonna abuse the people that I've been called to lead. This is ultimate justice that's going to come to the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's a difficult doctrine, but we can't be guilty of throwing out the baby with the bathwater just because of what we don't want to become because Jesus holds both of these up in perfect tension. So I think there's a warning for us here. As we come to the end of Matthew 23, there's really uh, two inerrant warnings. Uh, one is for leaders and one is for church members or for all follower of Christ. Here's the warning that we find all through Matthew 23 for leaders. We're going to be held accountable for how we lead. Like you talk about a passage of scriptures. I've studied this on my own 
and, and with others for the last six weeks. I mean, because th- this passage of scripture is speaking to people like me who are leading within the church. And I mean, the dangers of, of what happens if we start to use this position that the Lord has given us for our own greed and personal gain, and if we're uh, abusing people with the word of God and harming those that we've been entrusted to lead, there's a serious warning here. Listen, this is why the book of James gives us this warning. James writes that, he says, let not many of you become teachers. He said, you gotta understand that those of us who become teachers, we are going to be held to a higher standard. I'm going to experience a more strict judgment than everyone else. I don't know about you, like I take that pretty seriously. When God's word tells me that at the end of my life, I'm gonna stand before him and I'm gonna be held at a higher standard than everybody else for how I preach this word, how I led with this word. And so there's warnings there for those who lead. You you cannot just abuse the word of God. You can't just add in your own rules and hold people accountable to those arbitrary rules and abuse and harm those you've been called to lead and not experience some sort of punishment for this. Jesus says our earthly self-righteousness will have eternal consequences. So there's a strong warning here for those of us who lead, but then there's another warning for all of us just as church members, as followers of Christ. And the warning is that we need to faithfully receive those who are faithfully sharing the word. We can't be guilty of rejecting those who are sharing the word of God. Again, this wasn't just the issue with the scribe of the Pharisees. It wasn't just uh, that they were guilty of, of leading poorly. It's they were guilty of following poorly. For generations, they had rejected the prophets. They refused to faithfully li- to listen to the faithful proclamation of the word of God. Here they are rejecting Jesus. And so they're going to be held accountable for this, that the blood of the prophets was on their hands. The blood of Christ is going to be on their hands. We're going to be held accountable if we don't receive the word faithfully. And so I think we need to understand this morning, when we talk about spiritual harm and spiritual abuse, especially within the context of the church, uh, that's a sword that cuts both ways. This really goes both directions. Yes, we rightly hold accountable leaders who have been leading poorly, but sometimes we forget too that spiritual abuse can come from the opposite direction from people who won't listen to the faithful proclamation of the word of God. So so church, you and I have a mutual responsibility here that we will both be held accountable for on the judgment day. It is my responsibility to open up this word and as faithfully as I can proclaim what it says. And not just as we've seen the last several weeks, be a church of orthodoxy, but be a church of orthopraxy. That we we don't just preach the gospel of grace, we practice the gospel of grace that yes, we preach the truth against sin, but we're also a safe haven for sinners who are desperately in need of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. I'm gonna be held accountable for these things. And you too are gonna be held accountable for how you receive the word. This is why the writer of Hebrews uh, says it like this. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so that's the reminder for me is, again, I'm going to give account one day uh, for how I led and shepherded within the local church. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We have to be so careful that we do not make the same mistake of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's so easy for us to suffer from our own chronological snobbery to look back in generations past and say, hey, we would have done it differently. Let me just give you a few examples. You just rewind the clock 50, 60 years. And you'll hear me quote a lot throughout the course of a year, guys like Leonard Ravenhill, like I did earlier, A.W. Tozer, because they were prophets in their generation. But here's the thing about these generational prophets is very, very seldom are they well-received in their own generation. Prophets are often perceived as being radical, as being extreme, as being being a little bit too heavy, like that was just a little bit too much for, for us to stomach, and the people don't typically listen to what they have to say. And then what happens 40, 50 years later is people pick up their books and read them and go, whoa, 
should have listened about three decades ago. You talk about the 21st century, I mean, just this disgusting like consumer church culture that we have. Raven Hill and Tozer called it like 60 years ago. They saw all of it coming. You know, if I had to venture a guess this morning, I would say uh, outside of the Bible, uh, the one person who will probably be quoted the most uh, at churches all across the South on this Sunday as we gather together this morning uh, will be Charles Spurgeon. Probably the most quoted voice uh, outside of the Bible, maybe of, of this generation, particularly churches here in the South, but you rewind the clock 150 years, this was not the case across the South. So Charles Spurgeon is known to us now today as the prince of preachers, his works, his books, his sermons, they have all endured. Uh, if you've been in my office before, you know that I have a little bobblehead of Charles Spurgeon sitting on my, uh, on my shelves. This was given to me from Craig Reeves uh, Christmas before last. So that is my monument to Spurgeon, right? Like in light of, uh, of Matthew chapter 23 here, uh, but he was not revered in this way just 150 years ago. And you know why? It's because his tra uh, Spurgeon traveled from the UK to preach in the United States, he was one of the most vocal, outspoken opponents of slavery. He said that those who were guilty of, of what he called man-stealing, they should be denied fellowship and excommunicated from their churches. And listen to me, he was right. We, we look back at history sometimes and we just kind of brush it off. Well, they were just sort of a product of their generation. That is garbage. There were tons of people calling them out for their sin. They knew what they were doing when they were cutting verses out of the Bible, making a slave Bible so that slaves would have no belief that they had any reason to be free. They did these things on purpose. And Spurgeon was calling into account this. So as a result of this, there were Baptist churches all across the South. They were burning Spurgeon's sermons. They were burning his books. They were threatening his life. I mean, he was preaching in New York. They were like, come on down to the South, Charles. Let's see what happens. They called him a spoiled brat because he's in like his, his mid-20s preaching against these things. So again, just 150 years later, we hold him up as a champion. But just 150 years ago, people were ready to put, burn him at the stake. We have to be so careful that we don't run the same risk because unfortunately, church history tells us we probably would have been a lot like them if we're just being honest. And so we can't be guilty of the work of the scribes and the Pharisees of self-righteously looking at the past, suffering from chronological snobbery, looking at everything through rose-colored glasses, saying we would have been different because they were no different from their forefathers. Here they were getting ready to crucify the perfect son of God. We won't just be held accountable for how we lead. We're going to be held accountable for how we listen. Do we faithfully receive the word of God when it calls us to account? Let's finish up the chapter here, verses 37 to 39. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this morning we've seen the warning for those who refuse to repent of their self-righteousness, it's eternal condemnation without escape. And then secondly, we see the promise, which is gracious invitation into his embrace. Listen to the language that Jesus uses here, that there's so, many, uh, so much language of endearment that happens in just these few verses. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Th this type of double repetition from either God the Father or Christ the Son, it's very, very rare through, through Scripture, and it's, it's a, a statement of very intimate personal address. So you see it in the Old Testament, Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses. We see Jesus in the Gospels, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon, and then probably most powerfully from the cross, my God, 
my God. It's a statement of deep, intimate, personal affection. Jesus here is expressing his grief. He's raising his lament over Jerusalem. He so desires to gather them in to himself. These are his people. These are his children. So desires to gather them together. He said, but you just won't listen. You're unwilling to repent. You're unwilling to soften your hearts and turn. He uses this motherly language to describe this affection. He says, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Have you ever seen this before? You ever seen this in action? This is the kind of the scene in our neighborhood a few weeks ago. We had a goose that was walking across and she's got little, you know, baby geese coming up behind her. And then mama goose goes across the street. But then, you know, like good kids, they don't do what mom wants them to do, Right. So what should I, it's, I, I know geese, they don't quack. What if they just squawk or something, whatever they yell. It's, it's unpleasant when they make the noise, right? And, and so she's like hollering back at them across the street. Then they finally come across. And as they're coming, what's she do? She one wing and she just sweeps them all in. And so even as unpleasant as repentance can be, Jesus, this is what he's inviting us into. He's like, how often I would have gathered you to myself. I would have spread my wings over you given you my protection, you would have felt the warmth and the intimacy of my embrace, but you refuse to repent. You refuse to soften your hearts. You refuse to turn. And this is what he invites us into. Church, I think sometimes we forget repentance is a hard word. Again, it, it tends to be one of those hellfire and brimstone type words, right? Like we think some guy yelling and screaming from a street corner, standing on a bucket to repent. And so we kind of shy away from this. We forget Romans 2. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. As unpleasant as it can be, as difficult as it can be to shed the skin of our old selves, Jesus is doing it because he wants to gather us to himself, to warm us, to protect us, to invite us into intimate relationship with him. This is what he extends to us today. He warns the, the Pharisees. He says, this is going to be the last time you see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's pointing to his second coming. And he tells them, he says, listen, your house is desolate. And even on that particular day, as he was preaching those words, as their houses stood strong, as the temple stood strong, just a few decades later in AD 70, Jerusalem would be destroyed exactly the way Jesus had prophesied. The judgment was going to come. And so that that same invitation is for us today. Listen, church, there's not another generation of Old Testament prophets coming. Christ has come and he has spoken. And there's those who continue to speak his word today. And we're not going to see him again until that day when we are all proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so while God is gracious and he's merciful and he's kind and he is patient, that patience is not forever. The time is going to come when we get our last, last chance. And he continues to issue this call to us today. But it's not just the call to repent. It's the invitation to his embrace. But we love that promise from Matthew chapter 11. What's it say? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what's he promise? I will give you what? Rest. Repentance is the invitation to rest. It's the invitation to security and to comfort and his protection. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden, it's light. It was the antithesis of the religious culture of his day, where people were beaten down with legalism and with burdens. It's just a toxic culture of shutting the door in the faces of sinners who desperately wanted to know Jesus. He still invites us to himself today. So as we, we close out this chapter this morning, I want to ask this question, how can we get off of this path of self-righteous, performance-based, legalistic churchianity? 
It so pervades our culture. So many of us have have experienced it in our lives. How is it that we can get off of this path of legalism and be invited into the comfort of his embrace? We see from this passage this morning a few things very quickly. First, we have to recognize our own self-righteous tendencies. We have to recognize our own self-righteous tendencies. Again, it's so easy for us to repeat the mistake. It is so easy for us, particularly in our justice-oriented culture today, to look back on the sins of the past and say, we would have done it differently. Because church, again, the unfortunate story of history is no, we probably wouldn't have. Let's just be honest. It's so easy to look back on the sins of the forefathers and say, we would have done it differently. We would have listened to Tozer. We would have listened to Ravenhill. We would have listened to Spurgeon. We would have listened to the prophets. We would have listened to Jesus. And what you and I have to come to grips with this morning is not just the reality that we could have been responsible for crucifying Jesus. We need to come to grips with the reality that we did crucify Jesus. It wasn't the religious leaders primarily who put him on the cross. It wasn't the justice system of Rome that put him on the cross. It was our sin that put him on the cross. Church, here's the sad reality this morning. We are the Pharisees. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We have all convinced ourselves that we can save ourselves. You think of the words of the great hymn writer, Stuart Town, and his hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, he said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us leading us to repentance. Church, understand this morning, when we preach about the cross, we teach about the cross, we sing about the cross, we are not just preaching and teaching and singing vaguely about a cross or the cross. Church, that was my cross. That was your cross. Jesus did not just die for you in some vague, generic sense. He died instead of you. He died in place of you. He stood in our place in death. He took our place in death to fully absorb the wrath of the Father against sin, a wrath that does remain on us until we repent and turn to him. So we have to recognize our own self-righteous tendencies. And as we do this second, accept his invitation to repent. Accept his invitation to repent. Jesus cries out over these people, how often I would have gathered you in. For centuries, he had been calling out to them how often I would have gathered you in. Again, God is gracious. He is merciful. He is kind. He is patient, but his patience is not forever. Again, we, again, read the Bible through these rose-colored glasses, and it's so easy to look at the actions of the Lord when he floods the earth in the book of Genesis. How could a loving God flood the earth? How could he destroy mankind? They were given 120 years to turn. 120 years the Lord was patient with them, a whole generation. We see it again in Genesis chapter 15. For 400 years, he delays his wrath until the sin of the Amorites was complete. For centuries, the Lord sent the prophets to the nation of Israel. He called them back to themselves, but they killed the prophets. Finally, God the Son himself comes, and they still don't listen to what he says. 
And it remains true today. Christ has come. He's lived. He has died. He's risen again. He has spoken. One day he will return. And the time is coming when we will have our last, last chance. His patience is not forever, but the invitation is for you to turn and repent. And he leads you there in kindness because he wants life for you. He wants joy for you. God is a loving father, but he is also a just judge. Our sin will not remain unpaid for and unpunished. The invitation for you today is to turn from your sins, to repent of your sins, to call on his name and be saved. And as we do this, I think the ultimate antidote for, worship, or for self-righteousness simply is worship. So third, we'll exalt the name of Christ above all others. You want to forsake bad religion, you want to walk away from self-righteousness, it just begins with worship. I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a moment as we close to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12. And I want you to see this passage of Scripture because it's a reminder for us this morning of where all of this is going. The day is coming that the Lord will gather us to himself fully and completely for all of eternity. And, and this might break some of our hearts this morning, but when we gather together and worship for eternity, it's not going to be you at the center of it all. It's not going to be me at the center of it all. It's not going to be our church at the center of it all. Like we aren't going to walk across the stage like high school graduation and be handed a diploma for graduating from the school of religious good works. This is where all of this is going from Revelation chapter 7. Let's read verses 9 through 12. This is John's vision. He says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. One day we will gather around the throne. It's not going to be to celebrate me. It's not going to be to celebrate you. It's not going to be to boast about our religious accomplishments. They're at the dead center of it all. It's going to be the one who perfectly carried every religious burden that you and I could never hold. So that we could walk in freedom in life and eternal rest in his name. When you take the invitation of Jesus from Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I've always loved how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, come learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Lord's calling you out of the burden of bad religion. He is calling us out of the burden of performance-based Christianity to fully and completely rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's from that foundation that we get busy and get to work as an unforced rhythm not out of begrudging submission, but unforced rhythm as we worship the one who carried the burden that we could never carry for ourselves. You just bow your heads with me for a few moments this morning. As we uh, prepare to come to the table today for communion, we come to remember, as we'll sing in just a moment, that the work has been finished. 
you can be freed from the burden of believing that God's love for you is based on your performance for him because Christ has paid it all for you. This morning, you you can step out of this mindset of fear, of believing that God's love for you is predicated on how well you're gonna do tomorrow morning. If you are in Christ, God only always and continually sees you through the perfection of his son, Jesus. This morning, you, you can lay down not just your rebellion and your sin against the Lord, you can lay down your religion the belief that you can do it all yourself. So wherever you're at this morning, if it's carrying the burdens that were placed on you by the religious culture, listen, maybe you have been a perpetrator of that system and you've been guilty of burdening others. Wherever we come from this morning, here's the good news for us today. Jesus loves the Pharisees too. He died for the Pharisees. He seeks to gather us back to himself. If we will soften our hearts and turn and repent, we'll find life in his name. So fathers, we come to you this morning, we come confessing that we are prone to try to do this on our own. We come confessing that we have a tendency to hide behind our religious performance. We have a tendency to not show the same love and mercy to others that has been shown to us. So father, I just ask today that you would purge our heart of all of this and we would confess these things to you that you would give us hearts of genuine repentance where we will turn from our sin. Father, as we come to this table, help us to remember that it was our sin that put you on the cross, but it was your love and your mercy that caused you to go there. Help us to see that clearly again today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen.